It's not only national recognition, but the opportunity to carry the coveted number one. What did I do? Eject it. I wanted to replay it. Huh. Let's see if this 84 one is the mud race. Rita Coombs is reminiscing. When we find a cardboard file box full of VHS tapes, we start jamming them into a well-worn TV-VCR combo. Rita giggles as she watches the decades-old footage from a race she co-created in 1982 with her husband Dave and a man named Paul Schlegel. The AMA Amateur National Motocross Championships at Loretta Lynn's Dude Ranch. The event was born out of their own frustrations and experiences. This is the result of the combined efforts of the AMA, Loretta Lynn's Ranch, and MX Sports, a 1.5-mile national caliber motocross track and the site of the 1984 AMA Weisco Amateur National Motocross Championship. He went and uh, thought he could do it better and <laughs> we did. Well, I was born to call miner's daughter In a cabin on a hill in Butcher Holler In the summer of 1981, a trio of motorcycle racing promoters from Ohio and West Virginia were looking for a facility. A country music legend needed to fill a campground. A sanctioning body wanted more members and a marquee event and amateur motocross racers wanted a true and fair national championship. From the RacerX Podcast Network, in association with We Went Fast, this is the story of how everyone got what they wanted. Narrated by Brett Smith. west of Nashville, Tennessee, off Interstate 40, is the small community of Buffalo Creek. Seven miles north on Route 13 is an area known as Hurricane Mills. This is the home of world-famous country and western singer Loretta Lynn. Everybody's been to Loretta's at least once. Everybody. And they think it's the world's greatest vacation, just like we promoted it. It's some of the most intense competition you'll find anywhere. At the same time, it's down home and laid back. Put those two together, you come up with the world's greatest motocross vacation. Since 1982, Ranch has been the site of... But what many have forgotten, or never knew, is that there was AMA Amateur National Championship racing before digging in at a dude ranch west of Nashville. Loretta's wasn't the beginning, but it was a turning point. If you were to open up a mini cycle action magazine or a cycle news from the 70s, you wouldn't see the name Loretta Lenz anywhere. Rita's son, Davey, was a 15-year-old Team Green Kawasaki rider in 1981. But you would barely see the AMA Amateur Nationals either, even though they were at some pretty good racetracks like um, uh, Otter Creek in Iowa, Baja Acres in Michigan, High Point Raceway. The American Motorcyclist Association's Youth Motocross Nationals started in 1973 at Mid-Ohio. Mark Barnett was the 61-80cc champion. The Amateur Motocross Nationals 
for riders at the 125, 250, and 500cc expert levels, started in 1975 in Kansas. Mark Barnett, again, only 14 years old, dominated the 125 class. Every autumn, the events were held in different locations. As a result, the AMA Youth and AMA Amateur Nationals, which were separate events, weren't very good for promoters because you only had 160 riders, tops. Uh, there was no B class. There was no vet class. There was no C class. It was just the 40 best amateur riders in the country. And I think that that's what prevented it from ever growing. Uh, and besides that, you know, it didn't make a lot of sense to have it in Plymouth, California one year and then the next year have it at Lake Sugar Tree because you pretty much split the country in half every time you did it. But the AMA was trying to be you know, politically correct and move it around to various promoters that they felt deserving or racetracks are deserving. I was hired in 1976. I came to work for the AMA. Hugh Fleming was the amateur activities manager for the AMA. The Amateur Youth National Championships were two of the many events he oversaw. It was pretty much in the hands of various promoters. I was just trying to find promoters that would put it on every year. And a lot of those tracks were doing it uh, as a way to get noticed by the AMA. I know that that was the reason my dad did it in 1977 was, you know, he was trying to maintain a good relation with the AMA despite having moved to his third track in three years. So when he asked for the 1977 High Point Pro National, he also said, and I'll take the Youth National if, if, if you like. And uh, so that's when he established his relationship with having these amateur events. And then he had a second one in 1980 at a place called Brownsville, which was actually uh, the city park and golf course that had gone bankrupt in southwestern Pennsylvania. And we're looking around and we can't find the track. And we're like, what the heck's going on? And all of a sudden we see Dave Coombs. And my dad's like, "Where? where's the track? He says, it's right here. We're going to lay it out right now. Todd DeHoop was a District 14 regular from Michigan and one of 253 other youth racers who competed on the unique layout that had the feel of a European-style scrambles course. We went out there and walked, walked the golf course and, and laid out sticks and banners and long banner tape and just walk the track and, and put it in. I mean, that was the national for AMA. The last youth national before Loretta Lynn's, Rolling Hills in North Carolina, Reedsville, North Carolina. And of all people to show up and race. All I remember is it was a freaking mutter, and I know that me and my dad, when we got done, I don't remember if I won any classes or anything. I remember that was probably one of the first times I met up with Bowen where I raced Bowen, and he was freaking fast <laughs> in the mud. Ron Lachine's dad brought him across the country. We all knew who Ron Lachine was because I think he'd won Mammoth Mountain and, and was in Cycle News and would end up in all the magazines and stuff, and... Uh, he was a Yamaha support rider, and of course his dad had founded Maxima Oil. I know we pushed the bikes in the back of the truck, and we drove all the way across the country. When we got home, we, we they wouldn't even roll out of the truck. Everything just locked up, and chains were seized, and everything was done. I think we just gave those bikes back to Yamaha, and here you go. 
Reedfield was a was a fun race. It was the first time that Ronnie had got to kind of test his skills against some of the kids back east, you know. Dick Lachine traveled extensively for his company and often took Ronnie with him. He liked giving his son the opportunity to race in different locations and against unfamiliar competition. The race at Rolling Hills was the first AMA National Lachine had competed in, which took place at the end of August 1981. There was trouble before the first gate had even dropped. Because hey, the people were about ready to lynch the AMA representative over something. I forget what it was. I think it was qualifying to get there. They had him surrounded. It was really kind of scary for a while. Hugh Fleming says he doesn't remember the incident at all, but it was notable enough to make the pages of Cycle News. Tom Mueller wrote, quote, The program got off to a rough start when AMA's Hugh Fleming had to inform riders that seven of the eight classes would have to be broken into divisions due to an overflow of riders. Tempers flared as entrants were under the impression that only 40 riders per class were to be accepted. End quote. In the end, every rider got to run three motos, but only the top 40 were allowed to move into the fourth and final championship moto. Fleming was quoted in the article as saying, This year we invited a few more folks than before to draw a better turnout, and more riders showed up than ever before. We had to devise a new program to accommodate them all, and I believe once everyone saw how we were doing things, they realized it was fair. Dave and Rita Coombs were at Reedsville, not as promoters, but as moto parents. Their sons were competing. And I would score every moto that... Timmy or Davey rode because I wanted to make sure they got their score right, you know. And um, it started to rain, and everybody quit scoring. They, it was like, I don't know if they didn't want to get their hair wet or what, but everybody ran in. And uh, me and another lady whom I didn't even know stayed out and scored this that that race and then it was real muddy from then on and scored those races and then stayed that night and sorted out the results the race at rolling hills was such a debacle that linton kukler the ama's executive director wrote every single participant a note of apology by this point dave coombs and paul schlegel were already working on an idea they had a better way that was more fair and more organized, and where nobody had a home track advantage. The AMA had had several national championships, and, and they were just terrible. Schlegel was a respected promoter who was fair to the point that he refused to fudge attendance numbers. Organized, too. Now 80 and long retired, he still packs a desk drawer full of office supplies into his shirt pocket. He amassed a very long resume in his career, but was most noted for putting Supercross in the Pontiac Silverdome in 1976. Paul was an epic promoter, and he was also a big proponent of the AMA. And he and Dad had talked before about the idea of unifying the youth and amateur nationals. And I knew from being on the board that the, the financial situation at the AMA was not all that good, and they, they wanted something... Uh, I decided I would try and do something to make them some money. Uh, so we, we did, or I, I started working on it. The vision to have this even playing field, this track where everyone shows up, 
and thinks, oh, no one's got an advantage, came from two things. One was his own sense of fair play and, and having two boys that raced and really not wanting anyone to, to think that we had any sort of inherent advantage whatsoever. There was already a major youth national level motocross on the calendar every summer, and it played a key role in both frustrating and inspiring Dave and Rita Coombs. The real eureka moment for Dad of, of not playing favorites happened in August of 81 when we went to Ponca City. The big national amateur event was Ponca City in Oklahoma, and it was put on by guys from California. They were eating the AMA's lunch, basically. Uh, everybody, everybody went to Ponca City that was anybody. Now let's take a step back from the professional motocross scene and catch the stars of the future in action in one of the biggest amateur events of the year. To Ponca City we go. First run in 1976, the National Motorsport Association's Grand National Championships were simply known as Ponca. By 1981, the race was a must-attend for anyone wanting to be noticed. After a qualifying process, over 1,000 riders showed up every summer. For me, Ponca and stuff was a little bit more of a big, bigger deal. Everybody was there. The Yamaha team was there. We were kind of on our own when we would go off and do, you know, Reedsville or, or Loretta's, you know. And back then, it was like a five-race NMA qualifying series. We had to go to all these tracks in Ohio and West Virginia, and uh, and we got in. Uh, Timmy was in three classes, and I was in two classes, and we loaded the family up in the family van and uh, went to Ponca City. And um, first of all, we had to park way, way in the back. We didn't know the system. We didn't really know anyone. Uh, this was our first time going to this event. And... Um, but when it came time to race, I noticed, when, and everyone noticed, that there were a couple of people that were actually pitting on the starting line. They were literally on the other side of the snow fence, right there along the starting gate. And it was Kurt Henriksen and Lance Morwood. DMA 43 coming to you from Ponca City, Oklahoma, for the 1986 Yamaha Motocross National Championships. And we're very pleased to have with us right now the president of the National Motorsports Association who's putting on this event, Ron Hendrickson. Ron, it's a pleasure to meet you and a pleasure to have this event in Oklahoma for the ninth straight year. Their dads were the organizers of the event. And this would really piss my dad off because we we had such a lousy place to camp and every time we'd go to the starting gate he'd see those guys just sitting over there and just get madder and madder uh, that's why there's a lottery system at Loretta Lens to this day and then we would come to find out that there had just been a Bob Hanna motocross school at Ponca City and Hanna for $500 you could ride with the hurricane for a couple days before this NMA Grand National. And that was another thing. A, we couldn't afford it. B, we didn't know about it. And it was pretty obvious who had been to that school and, and who hadn't. And so those are the kind of things that just started really ginning up in my dad's head. Like, we can do this better. Mom goes over to sign us up. And uh, she tells the lady at the window, um, 
my son is in these two classes and my other son is in these three classes. And the lady more or less says, well, do you want to ride any more classes? And mom says, uh, we didn't qualify for any more classes. And she says, well, we still got some openings. It's no big deal. We'll put you in these classes. That really made my parents mad because we'd been chasing this qualifying system around uh, and we weren't very wealthy at all. We, 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 we were struggling. And if it hadn't been for Team Green, we wouldn't have even gone to Ponca City. I was very frustrated with Ponca. I told you I'd approached Ron Hendrickson. I said, um, you need to have a set of rules and follow the rules and blah, blah, blah. And he, he was like, I don't want to listen to you, lady, you know, complain or whatever. And he's starting his car and he's trying to move, whatever. And I'm like, got my hands on his window like this, you know, like a, just you'd normally touch somebody's car or whatever. And he rolled the window up on me. The idea that you could sign up when you got there was bad enough. It was made worse by the fact that you also had to qualify once you got there. So all those qualifiers that we did were kind of thrown out the window because you still had to qualify again when you got there. They didn't just have 40 riders per class. They had however many signed up. The week only got more frustrating as the mercury rose. It was brutally hot. We're sitting on the starting line. I, th I think my brother's sitting on the starting line. I'm not, I don't think I'm in this race. There's a first turn pile up, but Timmy is like running third. Um, they red flagged the race because one of the guys that goes down is Kurt Hendrickson. And uh, everyone goes back to the staging area and it's smoking hot. I mean, it's Ponca City. And uh, everyone sits there uh, on the starting gate, which did have a little bit of, a, of a, a canopy to it, but it was it was unbelievably hot. And they decide to water and work the track. And we're all sitting there watching as they go to work on Kurt Henriksen's bike because he's parked right in front of everyone on the starting line. His bike got all bent up in this crash. They refab his bike, get him ready to go. And we sat there for about a half hour. Then he comes back to the line and now they're ready to go again. This time, there's an even bigger pile up. And I mean massive. People going through the fence and everything because it was this weird left and right sort of dog leg turn. Uh, no red flag. Curdy's up front. There's no red flag. I think that that was the moment that dad literally hit the roof. We decided to leave, and, and, and Dad was just writing on a notepad, writing on a notepad. And this whole thing about uh, races, having better races, whatever, was, was out there on the table with the AMA. Dad was looking for a place sort of in the middle of the country, central to the AMA and the AMA's participants. And I'd heard about about uh, the Vetter Rally and the BMW Owners Rally and uh, the Loretta Lens. And I thought, well, that, that, I'll call them up. <laughs> I never find out anything, I just jump right in, you know. So I called them and uh, asked them if they'd be interested in doing a motocross for a week down there. And they would, they thought that was a great idea. So I and, and uh, Dave McCarthy, who worked for me, we went down, we made a deal with Mooney Lynn 
One of the things that Paul told Dad on that trip home was to stop at Loretta Lynn's ranch. He had been there before. Look at that campground. That's what it was. Look at the campground. We had left at about 3 o'clock that Sunday afternoon and got to Loretta Lynn's at about 3 o'clock in the morning. Pulled off and Dave went jogging. Welcome to the Loretta Lynn Dude Ranch. Nestled in the beautiful rolling hills around Hurricane Mills in west central Tennessee is a vacation spot that attracts thousands of visitors every summer. Here families can set up camp, then settle down to a time of rest and relaxation that includes all sorts of activities, such as swimming, racing down the water slide. They can roam the hills on foot or horseback, or go on a hayride. They can paddle their own canoe on Hurricane Creek or sightsee around the home of Loretta and Mooney Lynn. Almost every family that races has someone in it who doesn't. And Loretta Lynn's had a lot of things to do for that early 80s period. It was another one of those foundation or those founding blocks to, to, to build the race upon. Don't forget that while this may be the ultimate racing vacation for uh, uh, an aspiring young rider, it might be the only vacation for the non-rider in the family. Hi folks, I'm Loretta Lynn, and if you're looking for a good old-fashioned fun-filled vacation, hey, I know just a spot. Come on in. Loretta Lynn's ranch, the perfect getaway for the entire family. He looked around the ranch, decided, yeah, this might work, and drove down to the front office and literally knocked on the door and wanted to know if he could talk to Mooney Lynn, which, of course, the answer was no. She was as big as they get. This year, the Country Music Hall of Fame. The winner is... And the winner is... Country Music Entertainer of the Year is... She was born a coal miner's daughter. 50 years after she cut her first record. She has become a country music legend. From coal miner's daughter to pioneer woman. Miss Loretta Lynn. Loretta Lynn. Loretta Lynn still reigns as the rule-breaking, record-setting queen of country music. And you have to remember, this is a time when Loretta Lynn is just exploding on a pop culture basis. We got there just at the right time right when that wave was starting to really build. In 1980, the movie Coal Miner's Daughter was released. Based on Loretta's 1976 autobiography, it became one of the top 10 films of the year. Many nights I've laid. Brand new on the Zero label, Miss Lorene Lynn. What? Singing. It's Loretta. It's Loretta Lynn. So let's give a great big grand old Opry welcome to Miss Loretta Lynn. Nominated for seven Academy Awards, Sissy Spacek won for Best Actress for her portrayal of Loretta Lynn. And to walk in and, and knock on the door and even get Mooney Lynn to talk to him. In 1981, Tim Cotter was a young announcer working part-time with the Coombs family. You know, how do you get to that point? There was a guy who was their attorney 
that was running the ranch. Give him a few minutes so he could explain his idea. And he said, I could fill this place. We could have a motocross race here. It would be the biggest race of all. And uh, if I remember correctly, they said, no, we've been there, tried that. We had this veteran rally and uh, didn't do much for the ranch. And dad said, well, these aren't vetters, these are kids. These kids can't show up on bikes. They show up with their parents in vans and campers and whatever. And anyway, if I remember correctly, uh, he made enough of an impression on them that, that Mooney showed up. You weren't selling some hillbilly. You were selling somebody that was really schooled in the entertainment business. Dad sold Mooney on the idea that they could have this motorcycle race and for at least one week he could fill up this campground that they'd had a hard time filling up. Uh, even though back then people camped a lot and Loretta was pretty popular, Hurricane Mills is not exactly downtown Nashville. The idea of having that place filled up appealed to Mooney and somehow he and my dad just hit it off and I remember dad getting in Mooney's Jeep which had a cooler of beer in the back and them taking off like they were buddies. And uh, we just sat there in the van uh, and waited for him. It was good old boys. You know, Dave was a farmer. And Dave was able to, to say, I'm gonna take this beautiful land you have here and I'm gonna invite my, at that time, six, 700 of my closest friends with dirt bikes and we're gonna tear the snot out of it and uh, it's gonna be awesome. And he says, okay, let's do it. Dave needed the name. He needed uh, a billboard. He needed some place that everybody would remember. Today, that would be like going to getting one of the top artists, whether it be country or, or whatever on the charts and say, we're going to his ranch. That was a pretty big carrot. You know, a lot of people, instant, instant uh, awareness of, of where they were going. Couldn't wait to get there. Instead of going straight home, he drove to Westerville, Ohio, two days after our Ponca City experience, and he's in the office of the AMA trying to convince them that a standalone, unified, youth and amateur national in the middle of the country would work. Paul Schlegel met him there, and that one-two punch was probably pretty effective with the AMA. I was confident uh, that we'd, we'd do okay. Uh, and, and I told Dave, I said, this will be the last, before we even did it, I said, this will be the last event that goes down if, if, if AMA events ever go down in, in flames, why this thing will be the last thing standing because it was, it was gonna be good and it was good. There was a definite need for it. But they had to give him five years to build it. His dream was not to just have it there for five years or whatever. His dream was this was going to be what it is. Dave and my Paul came to the AMA and said, hey, we got this idea going. Brand new place to go to. And it's a place that nobody has ever ridden on. And uh, that ought to, you know, excite the writers, because we were quite often getting uh, comments about, well, you that's your home track, you know, and you write on it all the time. 
So when he said he had a track that uh, uh, nobody would ride on, and uh, I said, that's really a good idea. And that was Loretta Lynn's. Let's pause right there. Not only was there no home field advantage, there wasn't actually a track at all. There was a campground and a field full of horse manure. In fact, I told him where, where the, uh, I thought the racetrack ought to be. There's all kinds of hills and valleys on the property at Loretta Lens. In fact, right behind the country store, anyone who's been there knows that there's a great big valley that would look like Unadilla if we had a motocross track there. I thought, boy, that's a great place. People, they could have a racetrack down in that ravine and uh, the crowd could stand around the outside and watch, and it would be great, you know. Problem was, the track had to work not only for the best 125, 250, and 500 cc amateurs in the country, it had to work for four to six year old peewee riders too. When he got back, he, we got on the phone and he said, well, you can't have it in that ravine, he says, it's all rocks. He decided to go completely unorthodox and put the track right in the middle of everything. And that way people could camp all around it. Of course it was flat, but Dave had a different vision. Coombs and Schlegel, operating under the name MX Sports, had a facility, a sanctioning body, and an eyebrow-raising celebrity name. Now they needed a title sponsor. And Dad had a brilliant plan. Team Green Kawasaki was founded in 1981 and expanded the next year. Led by team manager Dave Jordan, who was based in Kawasaki's Atlanta offices, Team Green was signing up fast amateur riders in all corners of the country. We will make Team Green the title sponsor of the event if you put it in all of your riders' contracts that they have to participate. The formal contract between MX Sports and Kawasaki Motors Corporation was for $50,000, but included a discount for qualifying entries that went above 3,000 riders. Basically, the more riders Kawasaki could convince to show up, the less they paid. With sponsorship support coming together, Coombs also started cashing in on personal favors, calling on the other Moto Dads he'd met through his years as a promoter and as a father of racers. It's 2,000 miles from El Cajon, California to Hurricane Mills, Tennessee, but Dick Lachine agreed to drive across the country once more. I just figured that whatever, whatever was going to go on at Loretta Lens was going to be first class. In the March 10, 1982 issue of Cycle News, Dave Coombs wrote an editorial to explain the new vision. He made a few promises. One, a more streamlined qualifying process would help people save money. Two, the event will feel like a vacation. On page 29 of the same issue, in large, bold green letters read, Kawasaki presents the AMA National Amateur and Youth Motocross Championships. Underneath the headline were three columns of copy, starting simply with, Here's the Motocross Championship Series for anyone and everyone who's not a pro. Every one of the qualifying races were held on two consecutive weekends in mid-June, with the finale in Hurricane Mills on August 4th through the 7th. Just to make it to Loretta Lynn's, you're already the top, one of the top 40, and when you go down there, whether you finish first or 40th, you're still one of the best in the country in the class that you're racing. 
The cost was $30 per class to qualify at the regional level. Pre-entry forms had to physically be cut out of the newspaper and sent in to Gage Road in Toledo, along with a certified check or money order. The National was $45 per class to enter. That seemed like a steep price in 1982, but the event was risky for the promoters. The sanctioning fee to the AMA was $20,000, which included the right to call it a national championship. Then there was the facility rent, which Schlegel remembers as also being $20,000. We'd get mail in, I mean stacks of mail. Get up in the morning and sit at my dining room table with stacks of mail, open them and put people in the right places and you know make sure everybody got credit for where, where they were. and Just a lot of work, a lot of paperwork and whatnot. While Schlegel handled the politics and logistics, Rita applied her love of art and layout to designing ads, flyers, the racing bibs, and the souvenir programs that were filled with entries and yearbook photographs of the participants. The early versions of the iconic billboard, the one that stretches down the start straightaway, was hand-painted on sheets of 4 by 8 plywood. In July, Dave Coombs went to work turning a horse pasture into a motocross track. The lush green field looked inviting. It seemed like a great idea. I was a little bit leery about, you know, starting out on a fresh track. No one had ever ridden a bike on that field. When you walked on it, it was spongy. Like, you, it would give like a mattress. Not that bad, but it was like walking on padding because the water table was under it. They had cattle on it or horses on it or some damn thing. Uh, <laughs> there was manure around there. <laughs> and he built it from scratch. Uh, little mounds of dirt, tabletop in the middle. It was a lot of straight lines this way, turn around, go back that way. It, it was, it left a lot to be desired. It was like looking at a super cross track that just goes from one end of the stadium to the other but with a fraction of the jumps on it. And uh, his idea was to keep it grass until everyone got there to show them that Timmy and Davey Coombs had never been on that track and no one had been on that track. That would prove to be a fatal mistake. For those who arrived in 1982, there was a lot to absorb about the unorthodox setting. Or maybe take a quick dip in the pool or an old-fashioned rope swing into the creek that runs slowly through the campground. While the grounds were impressive, the track was a bit of an oddity. First time people rode into Loretta Lynn's, they were scratching their heads because it was a flat track in the middle of a field where they had been used to racing at Millville, you know, Spring Creek, Minnesota had a amateur national, uh, the old Hangtown track at Plymouth, uh, Carlsbad, Mount Morris, which still has a pro national, uh, even Lake Sugar Tree had a national. It was a big change and uh, hard for a lot of people to swallow at first. There was a, a strong misty dew fog over the grass and we rolled in and it was really hot and I, I looked out over that and there really wasn't a whole lot of track laid out yet. They were still laying it all out. And I, I, know, I, I know I said something like to my dad again, i like, do we have to go out and walk this damn track again? <laughs> I probably ran off and went and jumped in the stream while my dad was wanting me to be over there helping him with the bikes and stuff. But That creek 
is the lifeline of the entire ranch. And no matter where you're camped, whether you get a hookup or not, whether you dare to go in that swimming pool after two weeks of little kids in there, that creek is always there, it's always cool, it's always pleasant, and it's always packed with people. That's, that's the real secret to Loretta's. So in 1982, Ronnie Lachine showed up, as did a few of his Yamaha teammates. Team Green's Army was there, and the Michigan Mafia led by Team Dynamic. In all, 983 entries from 37 states were represented, a jump from 24 states at the 1981 youth and amateur events. Nearly 3,500 attempted to qualify. The day before practice, a local news crew arrived to promote the race, and Dave Coombs put about 10 expert-level riders on the course to give the camera some action to shoot. Right in front of everyone. It was not practice by any means, but it was like three laps. And I remember, I think it was Dick Lachine coming over to my dad saying, you can't expect them to race on that. Big Dave went to work with his track crew. At the same time, as families were arriving and registering, bad news was spreading throughout the campground. Almost metaphorically, tragically, on the last day of the 1982 Ponca City race, there was a train accident. On Sunday, August 1st at 4.43 p.m., Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railway Company train number 3700 collided with a station wagon. The driver was 28-year-old Dana Duke, the sports marketing representative of Oakley. His passengers were Bruce Bunch and Rick Hemme, both 16, and Kyle Fleming, who was 13. All three were members of the revered R&D Suzuki team, and all three were fast enough to be featured in full-page win ads in the magazines. As champions of both Ponca City and the World Mini GP, all three were expected to have successful professional careers. Fleming and Bunch were dead at the scene of the accident. Hemi died at the hospital nine days later. Of the three riders killed, Kyle Fleming was the only one signed up to compete at Loretta Lens. He would have been number five in the 85A stock 12 to 15 class. It was weird, it was just, it sort of set this pall over Ponca City that it didn't deserve. It was still a grand race, but it was it was as if uh, lightning had struck in a very terrible way to say this is, you know, this this is the end of a period. It kind of almost allowed us to make some mistakes allowed my dad to make some mistakes because it was very cathartic for people to sort of be around other motocrossers. It's not like everyone just went home and gone on with their lives. Half of the field came to the Rattle Lens and, you know, it's just sort of, it was a way to sort of heal that thing uh, that was, you know, happened, you know, a thousand miles away, but yet was very close to everyone. Once again, hello everyone, my name is Tim Connor, along with Larry Myers and the staff of WMX Sports FM 90. We'll keep you in tune with all the exciting racing action through the national championship today. After a full day of practice, the first annual AMA Kawasaki National Motocross Championships began on Thursday, August 5th, 1982. 
At 7 a.m., the loudspeakers crackled with Loretta's song, Coal Miner's Daughter. Larry Myers and Tim Cotter chatted on the microphones, talked shop, sponsors, and what lay ahead. Three days of nearly non-stop racing. On the line before them was 40 Open A riders, all wearing white bibs with big logos for Weissco Pistons, Jones goggles, and Klotz lubricants. All riders had a number between 1 and 40. Around 7.30, when Captain Russ Bennett waved the checkered flag, it was Pennsylvania's Emory Anden, coincidentally running number one, who took the first ever moto win. It was a promising start, but with 25 classes, there were 74 motos left to run. The first motos were dusty as hell because as soon as they got down into the grass and practice and all that went away, the soil was too, was too dry. And so big, puffy dust berms and, you know, hard to see. Then it started raining. And what was a dry, dusty track became long, combed out ruts that went literally the length of the straightaway. I thought that they laid it out pretty nicely. Uh, you know, I didn't, it, it wasn't totally outstanding or anything, but it was, it was good. There was nothing wrong with it. The race at Loretta Lynn's was one of Ron Lachine's last as an amateur. The 15-year-old competed in four classes, 125 youth and 125A, stock and modified in each. He was among the first to learn how cruel the three-moto format could be. And I had everything won going into the last day, and then it did what it does every year, and it went downboard. And I think I lost a clutch in one of my bikes in the mud, and, and I lost that class, and then another one of my bikes blew up. So I could have won four classes, but I had two deep, you know, bike problems. And I think I won all my motos going into the last day, every moto. Like I said, I was, I was pretty, I was on fire about then. If you feel like standing, stand up for the main, for the start. Here we go, the Miller main event. Lachine was the first to officially graduate from Loretta Lynn's. following March, he competed in the Daytona Supercross. Then in June 1983, he won the Orlando Supercross in the 250 class. He's only 16, but the hopes of Yamaha are on this young man's shoulders right now to stop the Honda juggernaut. And Lachine is in front and cooking. Other future factory stars competing in 82 included Mike LaRocco, Damon Bradshaw, Brian Swink, Eddie Warren, Ronnie Titchener, Donnie Schmidt, Keith Bowen, and even future world superbike champion Colin Edwards, who was a 51cc rider. One person Dave Coombs may have regretted inviting to the ranch that first year Super Hunky, let's hear it from Dirt Bike Magazine! was his good friend Rick Super Hunky Simon, the witty, often sardonic editor of Dirt Bike Magazine. I couldn't even figure out why the hell they wanted to do it. No need for it, no need whatsoever. Hate to lay it on the line like that, but it was, it was something that, that actually never really mattered and nobody really wanted. Simon did have a deep admiration for Coombs. 
and they bonded years earlier at the Blackwater 100. Uh, Dave has actually uh, worked real hard this year, and there will be comfort stops every six miles. Okay, there'll be uh, lemonade there, clean goggles, uh, pretty young girls to uh, to wipe your goggles. There'll be fans, and there'll be free club sandwiches. Despite his stance on amateur motocross racing, which included an odd disdain for the variety of divisions and classes, Simon wanted to support Coombs to the point that he even qualified for the one vet class. It was simply called Senior and was open to all riders over 30 years of age. Simon's on-track experience at Loretta's, however, didn't even last one lap of practice. He said the 500 Suzuki he brought to Tennessee was outfitted with a set of trick forks. Well, I didn't realize that the, they left out the damper rods in both forks. <laughs> so I, I went around for practice, and I, I nearly killed myself. When the November 1982 issue of Dirt Bike Magazine appeared on the newsstands, the Loretta Lynn's event was given six pages of coverage. The bold headline read, Slot Car Racing in Tennessee. The sub-headline read, No Hills and Hurricane Mills. I told him it. I'd cover anything he wanted to cover, but I'm going to have to tell the truth. And he said, okay, no sweat. Simon's truth was a very critical opinion with the occasional outlandish, even humorous statement. He congratulated the promoters for pulling off the event, but said the course was, quote, quite possibly the single most dangerous track we've seen to date, end quote. What enraged Simon the most, however, was the number of classes being run. He wrote, if amateur national racing is ever to grow up, it can't be treated as a chance to ride a whole bunch. No one had vet classes back then. That was that was dad's idea, uh, to have an amateur national championship with vet classes. There were no B classes, but that was dad's idea. And a lot of people thought it was a, a money grab to have these classes. Like, how can you have an A class and a B class? But, you know, that is sort of the progression that we have as motorcycle racers. And uh, yeah, he also wanted to be profitable. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but Rick said, what's next? A class for people with dead birds taped to their handlebars? <laughs> he also said it was the best thing anyone ever did for a swamp. He was he was not happy about the, uh, the track, that's for sure. Dirt Bike wasn't the only publication on the ground in Hurricane Mills. Rex Reese of Motocross Magazine spent an entire page sharing a snarky story about traveling to the south. On the weather, he said, it rained so hard that, quote, riders turned into rolling mud balls and the unrecognizable ones had to slow down and shout their riding numbers as they passed by the scorers. Reese gave credit to the promoter for not losing his cool and for managing to get in all the motos. Tim O'Haver provided coverage to Cycle News with Werner Straub behind the lens. No matter how disappointing the track was at Loretta Lens, they were really enjoying the campground. Spaghetti, racer's favorite meal. Always good to come down here. When everything's going right and you're having fun, it seems like the fastest week of the year. But when you're waiting for it to come up, it seems like it takes forever to get here. It was a different pace, it was a different vibe, and, and that's what people went home with. And Dad told them, hey, I'll fix the track. Yeah, I'll come back next year. It'll be a better track. And it was. He had this philosophy, everything you do, you do better the next time. You all have this. You all have the bib. This bib tells you that today you are among the 5% 
of American motocross athletes in the world. Today it's Tim Cotter who addresses the participants at the Ranch Pavilion during the Monday evening welcome ceremony. It's a duty he doesn't take lightly. Nearly 21,000 entries attempted to qualify in 2017. Only 1,440 slots were available behind the bright red starting gate in Hurricane Mills. Cotter and the staff recognize the sacrifices many make to be in that pavilion. There's a whole lot more people not there than are there. And to look out and see the, the intensity on, these, on a four-year-old or a 50-year-old's eyes, and they're just so, this is so important to them. And, and the struggles it took for them to get there, just think of the struggles for the people that didn't get there. The fact that that race has to run is a real heavy pressure. That's a, that's a real big undertaking. It's emotional for me because I look out and I realize how much people put into that. It's their life, it's their whole life. And the money that's spent, and the time that's spent, and the tears that are spent. You can go see uh, some movie star and, and you don't like that movie and you don't like him, but you, you'll go to see him again in something else. But there was only one race like that, and we had to make it. Despite the event's popularity, its cachet with sponsors and persons of moto influence, the promoters have never taken the bait to exploit it further. The course has never been made available to anyone except those who get through the process. The track at Loretta Lens is unique in that it is only used once each year for racing. Immediately following the Nationals, the entire track is disked, landscaped, and planted with grass for next year's event. As a result, it looks more like a golf course than a motocross track. Maybe it's because they don't want to overstay their welcome with Loretta. Maybe it's the integrity of maintaining an even playing field. Either way, after nearly 40 years, it's remained something special that can only be earned. Dad always said pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. And... That's why there's only one race at Loretta Lens. That's why you can't rent the track. You can't touch the track. And I think that people all across the country know that. And it builds a, a, a faith and a, and a reliance on the fact that they know that if they get to Loretta Lens, they're going to have just as much chance as the other 41 kids in their class you know over the years it's turned into the main deal and if you want to get noticed or you want to get some you know get your name in the you know underneath the the oems noses then you gotta you gotta go to loretta's you gotta win there come on brother be there buddy come on let's go now let's go it's so hot and there's so many fast guys that it makes it very difficult for you to make any headway. Because, I mean, everyone down there is the best from where they're from. Somewhere along the way, they discovered it was more than a race, more than a vacation. It was a gathering, a reunion. And then I realized it kept our family together. It kept all of our... Um, extended families together it was something that everybody had in common everybody lived for it it was 
that's all they wanted to talk about. You know, it's, <laughs> oh gosh, I guess, I guess uh, we were showmen, you know, and it came from the band and getting up and Dave getting up in front of the microphone, um, never shy, always outgoing, never met a person he didn't like, you know, nobody, there was never anybody that didn't like him. We were just part of it then. One of the things that he did that first year, and if I'm inflating the year, maybe it was the second year, but he very famously did this because Kevin Foley always talked about it. It was definitely 82, it was definitely 83. Right before the last moto of the year, he gave the track a full groom. He, we were running ahead of schedule, he stopped everything, and he made it just perfect. I don't remember what class it was, it wasn't my class, it wasn't Timmy's class, but he made the track perfect because he wanted those last people in the starting gate to know that they got the best track that, that, that he could deliver. And that's sort of ingrained in all of us, that idea that everyone deserves a championship experience because you want that track and you want the facility to look as good for the guy that got there on the last day or the guy that goes out in the last moto as the guy was in the first moto. And, and that, that constant attempt to improve and polish and deliver what people expect is the real secret, I believe, to the continued success of the event. Um, I don't think anyone would tell you that it used to be better. I think that, that we're 38 now when it comes to having a better Loretta Lens. Favorite event that I promote? Uh, it would probably be this one. I mean, it takes, this is a year-round job putting all this together. And it's when it lasts all six days. And uh, it, we look forward to it. Look forward to coming down here and working with uh, everybody down this area. Be With Rita by his side, Dave Coombs Sr. passed away in West Virginia on August 3, 1998. It was the morning of practice of the 17th annual Loretta Lynn Motocross. The show went on, right on time, and every rider received the championship experience he or she was promised. Hey, this is Brett. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, give it a rating, leave a comment, and most importantly, the next time you're at a race, please, please pass it along to your nearest neighbor in the pits. This has been a We Went Fast production in association with the Racer X Podcast Network. Produced by Brett Smith. Original score and sound mixing by Nicholas Smith. Many thanks to everyone who generously gave their time to tell the story. Don't forget, if you're looking for casual wear, racerxbrand.com is the place. Great moto content is at racerxonline.com or wewentfast.com. And lastly, best of luck to all the competitors at Loretta Lens this year, next year, and in the many years to come. Hey, while we're on the subject of Loretta Lens, are you a qualifier? Did you make it down to the big dance in Hurricane Mills? 
RacerXBrand.com has your officially qualified Loretta Lynn's t-shirt for only 20 bucks. And if you are headed down to Tennessee, be prepared. Get your tank top, get your ponchos, get your umbrella, and get an OGO backpack at RacerXBrand.com. Need reading material this summer? RacerX Illustrated is what you're looking for. Get over to RacerXOnline.com slash subscribe and get yourself subscriptions for as low as $10 a year. Subscribe now and get a free gift, a set of the 2018 Pro Motocross event stickers. That's racerxonline.com slash subscribe.